you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. So, I have felt led this morning to cut the sermon in half, basically. Okay, so if you have those sheets, and you're one of those people that likes to fill out every single line, I really do apologize. We're only going to fill out half of them. So I hope that you will show me grace. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49, and we're looking at the second of the four servant songs from the gospel, or from the fifth gospel, the prophet Isaiah, to see how it reveals Jesus to us. We're just going to look at the first six verses of Isaiah chapter 49 this morning. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. It, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and the Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you came after me. And I am so thankful that you came after us your church. Lord, I am no doubt preaching this morning to a congregation that feels beaten up by this world. Those of us who come in this morning feeling like complete, total, and utter failures. Failures in our walk with you, failures in the decisions of our lives, failures in the pursuit of any form of holiness. And Lord, honestly, many of us don't really, don't really feel like there's much hope in sight not to feel that way. I pray that, Lord, this morning you would use the balm of the gospel to heal our failing hearts. I pray, Father, that you would use the picture of your coming servant for us, Lord, to be a life raft of hope for us in the midst of this drowning world. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had a job that you felt like you couldn't succeed with? When many of you have probably been to my parents' house, and if you haven't, they, my parents live way off the road, and they really live in the middle of the woods. And so at their house, there's just a little bit of grass and just trees everywhere. Now my mom, she's not here this morning, so I can pick on her a little bit. She is what you might say a perfectionist, okay? And she always had this vision of the woods surrounding her house as being just clear and open and no underbrush, like Augusta National on Master's Sunday, right? That's, that's been her vision. And so one of the jobs that I had when I was a kid and a teenager is she would task me with going into the woods and picking up all of the sticks. Yeah, right? Right? And you would go... And you would pick up a stick, and you would find another one. And under that one, another one. And under that, another one. And you would be picking up sticks. And while you're picking up sticks, literally, sticks are falling to the ground. 
You can spend six hours picking up sticks only to find more sticks to be picked up. And you could get it as clean as possible. And then you would wake up the next morning and it was like they were all just right back. It felt, honestly, like a situation in which you could not succeed. A a lose-lose situation. And many of you probably can relate to that. You know, there's nothing more fatal to the human heart than hopelessness. And there's nothing more hopeless than waking up every day to a life at which you believe there is no chance of success. Many of you perhaps feel exactly that way in your relationship with God too. You know what God would have you to do, but you recognize you don't even come close to that. You know who God would have you to be, but when you look at your life, all you see is profound, utter, and deep-seated self-centeredness, don't you? You know the priorities that God would have for your life, but when you begin to evaluate your priorities, you recognize how far short your priorities fall for your life over what the Lord would prioritize for your life. And honestly for you, trying to bring God glory with your life, trying to bring God honor with your life, trying to live in any way a life that is pleasing and honorable to the Lord, it feels like trying to pick up all the sticks out of the woods. It it feels like trying to bail water out of the top deck of the Titanic. It, It feels like trying to swim all the way across the Atlantic to find any remnant of salvation. That you end up feeling like a failure, like a total and utter failure. Well, I think the good news for us is that the servant songs in Isaiah were really written to encourage God's failing people. When God's people feel and are reaping the consequences of being failures in the law of God. See, God had given his people his law after he had had rescued them. You have to recognize that, right? That's important. The law is a law of grace. He saved his people from Egypt. Then he gives them a law so that they can know how they can live in a way that is honoring to him and how they can live in a way in which they will flourish in the covenant and in the promises that God has given to them. But there's a problem. They are utterly incapable of keeping the law. They are sinners born with a sin nature that is bent towards sin. And the more they try to live according to the law, the more it turns into cold religion. And the more it turns into cold religion, the more they drift away from the law altogether. So they throw up their hands and they're they're total failures. And the consequences of being total failures in the law is they are going to be exiled from the land. Right? The northern kingdom, Israel, has already been exiled into Assyria. The southern kingdom, by the time we get to Isaiah and Judah, is about to be exiled into Babylon. And it is the result of their impossibility, their failure to keep the law of God, to not be who God had called them to be, to not do what God had called them to do, to not hold the priorities that God had given them to hold. And I want you to think about that. So in their minds, if they're in a place in which living according to God's law enables them to flourish, enables them to thrive, And living against God's law, failing to live all of God's law in totality means they live in exile and banishment from the promises of God. And they recognize that they are incapable of keeping the law. They feel like failures without hope, don't they? They have to. They have to. And so what God does is right in the midst of this afflicting message, right in the midst of this sense of failure, he speaks to his people and he says, but I want you to have hope. I want you to have hope that there is someone coming that is going to rescue you. 
There is someone coming that is going to deliver you from the sense of failure and bring you into a place of renewal and prosperity and flourishing in the midst of my promises. There is one who is coming who's going to establish for you a new covenant that you are going to be enabled by my spirit to actually fulfill and joy for the rest of your lives. And so what I want us to see is I want us to see this portrait of a servant who is coming. This picture of a servant who is coming. See, the problem with drowning is that it's impossible for a drowning person to self-rescue. That is, by the very nature of drowning, what drowning means, isn't it? That you might have a weak swimmer, and they'll drown in 10 minutes, and you might have a strong swimmer, and they'll drown in an hour, but the result is still the same. They still end up drowning. And there is no hope for a drowning person to look for some inner strength or some inner buoyancy that's going to enable them to be able to all of a sudden, by what they find within their heart and find within their will, bring them back to the surface so that they can be survived. The only hope for a drowning person is that someone who is able would come in after them. The only hope for a drowning person is that someone who is a stronger swimmer, someone who has a life raft, someone who is capable would come in, dive into the water after them, scoop them up and swim them back to the shore. And I think what we're supposed to see is that this is who the servant is that is coming. That is who is being written and sang about in these servant songs in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, 49, 51, and 53. That what we have here is we have this picture of a servant who is coming into the midst of his people that is going to come. That God is going to to rescue those who can't self-rescue. God is going to come after those who have failed his law that he might deliver them from his law. Now what's particularly beautiful about this servant in Isaiah chapter 49 in the second of these songs. And we've identified, by the way, if you missed last week, we've identified this servant according to the New Testament is the person of Christ. This is Christ that we're talking about. And what's remarkable about Isaiah chapter 49 is here is Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, and he's speaking in the Old Testament 600 years prior to his death. He's speaking in the first person. That we're getting a first person account here from the mouth of Jesus through Isaiah as to part of who he is and what his mission is to accomplish. And so we begin to understand who is the servant that is coming to rescue all of us drowning people who are trying to swim across the Atlantic. First, we'll see that he is a prophet with something to say. He is a prophet with something to say. If you'll notice, the way that he introduces himself, all of the prophets have these callings. And you'll see here, there's this calling. Isaiah has one in chapter 6. Jeremiah has one in chapter 1 of of the book of Jeremiah. And what you'll notice is it's very common for a prophet to have a commissioning. And so you see all of this prophetic language. Listen, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. Here is one who is coming like a prophet with authority to which all of you should listen. Every nation, even those who are outside of Israel, even those to the very ends of the earth. Here is a prophet with a message and with authority from heaven to whom everyone should respond and everyone should answer. Even most telling is what he says there in the beginning of verse 2. Here is this servant coming. Here is this prophet coming. Here is this instrument of God coming that's going to come for the salvation of his people and to come for the preaching to his people. But he doesn't come with a sword. He comes with a mouth like a sharp sword. 
that the, mess, that the instrument of God is going to be the Word of God. Now, most of us grew up with the children's poem, Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones, But Words Can Never Hurt Me. And so we hear this and we think, oh, okay, big whoop. You know, the prophet's coming. He's got something to say. If I like it, I'll listen. If I don't, I'll dismiss it, right? That's, that's how most of us take in, and, and all of us are on news overload with Twitter and all the different news pundits, right? And we are always constantly filtering out. And so we may hear this and say, okay, this is just another, another news bulletin that I'll, I'll filter through. This is just another message from another guy with something else to say. What's new? Stand in line. Get a Twitter account, Jesus. Tell me what I need to know, and then I'll decide if it's relevant or not. But what you have to recognize in the storyline of the Bible, and remember, we're in the big story, right? That's what we're talking about, the storyline of the Bible. That in the storyline of the Bible, there is nothing more powerful, nothing more potent than the Word of God. Nothing. You think back from this is how the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. What is it that brings order into chaos? What is it that flings the galaxies into existence? What is it that separates the night from the day? What is it that brings life into abundance? It's the word of God. You move forward into the Exodus. You have this mighty superpower, Egypt, that has the most, most uh, well-developed army and the most advanced technology. They have all of the wealth and all of the resources. And you have this slave people. What is it that brings Egypt to its knees? What is it that brings Pharaoh to his knees? It's the word of God that comes, before, comes forth and declares these plagues against Egypt and brings judgment against Egypt. And it brings a superpower to its knees. That's a, that's a message we, we should heed today, isn't it? Come into the New Covenant. Come into the New Testament. And how does John's gospel kicks off, kick off? It introduces us to the servant. It introduces us to Jesus by saying the Word came. The Word came and He became flesh and He dwelt among us. That the power of God became a person of God here dwelling in the incarnation among His people. That He could declare with a mouth like a sword to divide as the dividing edge of judgment of all people. It is the power of God that has stepped in to human flesh in the person of Christ. And then you go all the way to the consummation of the kingdom in Revelation chapter 19 verse 5 and what does he say? That there is one who is coming, who is called worthy, who will be riding on the white war horse and he will come and he will not come to devastate the earth with armies. He will not come to devastate the earth merely with swords and missiles and Sherman tanks. He will come just as it says here with a mouth like a sharp sword and he will speak a word of judgment and the Nations from coastline to coastline will be brought on their faces before him. There is nothing more powerful than the word of God. There is nothing more impotent than the word of man. And there is nothing more powerful than the word of God. And it is just like the, every other sword that has ever existed. It is just like every other great weapon that has ever existed. If it is for you, it is a comfort. If it is against you, it is an affliction. You think about the United States. Aren't we thankful that we have such a mighty military? Aren't we thankful that we have so many brave men and women that have been trained to be warriors on the front line? Aren't we thankful that we have the most advanced weaponry in the history of humanity? Aren't we thankful for all of that? It brings comfort to us, doesn't it? It brings comfort to us to realize that we have a nuclear arsenal that is unmatched. It brings comfort to us to recognize that we have men and women that are ready to go to the front lines today if need be. Men and women who are on the front lines today. But I bet it's not very comforting to North Korea. It's not very comforting to Russia. They, they would appreciate our military being far weaker than it is. It is a comfort to the people of the nation. But it is an affliction to their enemies. 
This is the same with the words of Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And he says that his flock, they know his voice. His flock know when he speaks and his flock are comforted by his words. His flock is thankful that the shepherd is speaking out across the darkness of the earth in the face of the wolves to let them know that he will protect them and he will deliver them and he will secure them. And so the sheep of the, of the shepherd hear the shepherd and they are, they are comforted. But the wolves, the wolves hear those that are the goats outside of the kingdom. They hear the words of the same shepherd and they tremble like the demons who beg him not to come against them. They tremble recognizing that he is not the voice of comfort in their case. He is the voice of judgment in their case. So we miss this about the message of Jesus. Jesus' message is a divisive one, brothers and sisters. It is a divisive one. It is the dividing edge of all judgment. It is the dividing edge that will determine whether or not you spend eternity with God or eternity separated from God. It is the dividing edge that determines whether or not there is comfort to be found in God or affliction to be found in God. It is the dividing edge to determine whether or not the word of God will come to you and deliver you and save you as a failure or if the word of God will only accentuate your failure further, condemning you and exiling you from the land. And so the question that this dividing word causes us to ask from the good shepherd is, are you drawn to the word or are you repulsed by it? Are you drawn to the words of your shepherd or are you driven away from them? Do you find the word of God a comforting call to walk with God and to know God and to enjoy God? Or do you find the word of God as a burden to you? Do you find the word of God as, as an antiquated system of morality that is oppressive and damning to you? What do you find the word of God to be? Well, if you hear the words of this prophet and they are comforting to you, if you hear the words of this prophet and you feel drawn to him, if you hear the words of the shepherd and you long for his deliverance, oh, he's coming, brothers and sisters. He's coming. He's not just a prophet with something to say. He's a son with glory to recover. A son with glory to recover. You'll see there in verse 3, he said, and he said, now remember, this is Jesus, the Son, talking about God the Father, saying, He said to me, God the Father said to me, God the Son, you are my servant Israel. Now that's odd, isn't it? You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, if you go and you study the Old Testament as we're doing, what you find is, is that Israel is often referred to as God's firstborn son. Israel is often referred to as God's firstborn son. But the problem is, is they don't look anything like their father. They don't look anything like their father. So the purpose is, is that, that through them, as God's firstborn son among the nations, they would bring glory to the name of their father by emulating their father so that all the nations would then be drawn to their father. But they failed at that. And so what is he saying when he calls, when he says, my servant Israel? Well, he's saying that there is another son coming. There, there's son language that's wrought throughout, right? Like, first of all, he says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, and named me my name. In, in Hebrew culture, who gives the name? The name is assigned by the Father. Here is the Father of heaven who is naming his own son. 
And we see here that he can't be referring just to Israel because he's talking about a single person who's born of a single woman, right? This is a single man, a single son that is named by God the Father that is now going to be a replacement who is uh, for all of Israel. That he is going to come in and he is going to succeed in every other way that Israel has felt. And through him, God's name will actually be glorified. Through him, he will restore to the name of God all the glory that is rightfully his. See, by this point, Israel is a shell of their former glory. It's been a long time since David and Solomon. It's been a long time since they were an empire to be reckoned with. Now they are just a tiny little two tribes remaining. They're at the southern tip and they, they are ripe for the pickings easily to be easy to be taken over. And they're about to be taken over. They're about to be carried off into Babylon, into exile. And I want you to consider this. While they're in Babylon, every single morning that they wake up, they're going to wake up to the consequences of their sin. Every single morning that they wake up, they're going to wake up in a foreign land serving foreign people who love foreign gods. And it's going to be a reminder to them that they have failed in the law of God. They have failed in the call of God. They have failed in the character of God. Every single day, they're going to wake up, recognize they are not in the promised land. They're not flourishing in God's promises. And they're not enjoying God's presence. That's probably something many of you can identify with. You wake up every day into a life. That seems to be a reminder of the consequences of your failures. Maybe there used to be someone that shared a bed with you. But your own failure ended your marriage. Or your own failure badly wounded your marriage. So that it seems to hardly be recovering. Maybe maybe you're uh, of an empty nester. And it seems like your kids don't want to come home. And it feels like a failure on your part. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did. But it feels like a failure nonetheless. Maybe you look at your reputation and it's as tattered as your broken down body is from all of the bad decisions and hard living that's been a part of your life. And you wake up every morning with the ache of your back and the ache of your soul and the loneliness of your life and the misery of your circumstances and the loss of everything that's mattered and, and the seeming shun of the crowds that you walk by. And every day it is a reminder that you have failed. And so if I was to ask you, give me the defining characteristic of your life, you would say, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. See, that's why the servant is coming, brothers and sisters. That's why Jesus came the first time. That's why Jesus is going to return the second time. Jesus came to live in place of his failing people. Jesus came to bring glory where they had failed to bring glory. Jesus came to experience affliction that they were owed on their behalf. Jesus came so that he could succeed in every way that you have failed. And by succeeding in every way that he, you have failed, he puts an expiration date on the consequences of your sin. He puts an expiration date on it. See, it's a misnomer. It's a misnomer. It's Christian forgiveness, and you and I, if you and I have done counseling together, we've talked a lot about this. Christian forgiveness is one of the great misunderstandings, I believe, of the 21st century church. That we sometimes have an understanding of Christian forgiveness that says, if I am forgiven, then all of the consequences in my life must immediately be eradicated. That's a misunderstanding of the reason that Christ came. If you have sinned against your husband, sinned against your wife, and you have mortally wounded your marriage, that bell may not be able to be unrung. Even if forgiveness is granted, right? That there are some consequences that come into our lives in the way that we've treated other people, or the way that we've treated our bodies, the way that we've treated uh, our parents, the way that we've responded in, in, in 
uh, pressured situations and, and bells that just simply can't be unrung in the here and now and horizontally in our relationships with other people and our experiences in this life, those consequences may be something that we have to live with for a long time. Even, even if they can be recovered, it takes much longer than simply deciding that I'm going to trust in Christ. Through the power of Christ, you may be able to overcome those things. I, I, I think in many circumstances that is true. But what the hope is, what the hope is if you've failed and it seems mortal, what, what hope is if you've failed and it seems fatal, is that now whatever consequences have come into your life, whatever hardships you've faced, whatever disappointments you've known, however you've wounded other people, now there is an expiration date that Christ is going to return. And one day you are gonna step out of this life and into the next life. And though all of your immediate consequences may, be, may still be present, your eternal consequences have been erased forever so that now you can look back forever and enjoy the fullness of perfect fellowship with God forever. So you see, in that way, in that way, the gospel, the gospel is a life raft of hope for the failure. The gospel means that your failure does not define you forever. The gospel means that Jesus defines you forever. You are who he says you are. You are who he's made you to be. You are what he has purchased for you. You are what Christ has done. And Christ has succeeded in every way that you have failed. Christ has overcome in every way that you've fallen short. And Christ, Christ has said you will be exalted with him. So this morning, if you feel like a failure, don't you want Jesus? Don't you want him? Don't you want the one that puts an expiration date on the pain and the chaos and the turmoil in your life? Oh, brothers and sisters, it's true. It's true. We know it's true. He was raised from the dead. It's true. He's coming as a prophet with something to say, a son with glory to recover and a missionary with hope to give. A missionary with hope to give. Here is Israel and what ought to happen to them. Here, here's Judah, more specifically, in the prophecy of Isaiah. What ought to happen to them? God ought to let Babylon carry them off. He ought to let them be blotted out from the history and the annals of, of, of history. He ought to let them become just an afterthought to the entire history of the world. But instead, he says, I'm going to save them. Instead, he says, I'm going to send my very own son who is going to come and he's going to succeed in every way that you failed. I'm going to send him and I'm going to send him because you can't self-rescue. You can't find inner buoyancy and inner moral strength. You can't do it. So I'm going to send him who is able after you. Now, why does he do it? That's the better question. Why does he do it? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That God is sending a missionary after his runaway people, after his failing people, because he loves you. Because he loves you. And so he sends his missionary son who is going to be afflicted in such a way that he tells us here in verse four that it's going to appear as though he labors in vain. It's going to appear that he spent all of his strength for nothing. All of his brilliance, all of his charismatic are going to amount to a, a wasted life, but he's going to come and he's going to give that life what appears to be a waste for those of us who feel like a waste that we might be rescued. And he says the mission is two parts. 
In verse five, he says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. The first part of his mission is he's going to bring Jacob back in. He's gonna bring him back into the promises. and, And Jacob here is representative of all of the nation of Israel. And it's interesting there that he goes back to the name of Jacob and not to the name of Israel, isn't it? He goes back to the to the time before God had changed him to remind us that Jacob wasn't worthy either. And what did God do? God came after him. God wrestled Jacob to the ground. God is the one that changed Jacob's story. And God is the one that's going to change Judah's story. And brothers and sisters, God is the one that changes our story too because he comes after us in pursuit of us as a missionary for us. Now, what's interesting is all they would have wanted living in exile in Babylon was for God to bring them back into the promised land, for God to bring them back into Canaan so that they could enjoy the promises of God anew and prosper anew and enjoy the reign of David and Solomon anew. And all of you who feel like failures, maybe that's what you, God, would you just bring my marriage back? God, would you just bring my health back? God, would you just bring my job back? God, I'll do better this time. God, I'll live better this time. And what we long for are the gifts of God, but what he doesn't say that he's going to do that, does he? He doesn't say, I'm going to bring Jacob back into the promised land. He says, I'm going to bring him back to him. That what their greatest need was not to get back to Canaan, you see. The greatest need of Judah was not to find their way back into Jerusalem and to reconstruct the temple. Their greatest need of Judah was not to get back to Canaan. It was to get back to God. And your greatest need is not to overcome the health problems that you have. And the greatest need that you have is not to overcome the marital problems that you have. And the greatest need that you have is not to overcome the, the wounds of the heart caused by your children. The greatest need that you have is to be right with God because God could restore to them all of their promised land. And all they would do is crumble again. All they would do is fall back again and God could restore your health, but living in this broken world, your health is just going to fail again. God could restore to you your job, but eventually you're still going to find yourself hopeless again. God could restore to you your marriage, but you're still going to fail in your marriage again. Your greatest need is not the gifts of God. Your greatest need is God himself. By God giving you himself, he gives you a life that is impenetrable. He gives you a life that is eternal. He gives you a life that is a foundation the promises that you can enjoy him and flourish according to his word forever. This is what the prosperity gospel gets wrong. Jesus's first coming wasn't so that you could have wonderful material wealth and perfect health. Jesus's first coming was so that you could be right with God, so that you could have a foundation, that you could be brought into relationship with him that could see you through bad health and could see you through your disappointments and could see you through your, through your brokenness and your failures and all the things that you blow up in your life so that you could know there is a day coming in which all that, is, that I have broken apart is going to be put back together by God himself because he is that good and he has come after me. So the first part of his mission is to bring Jacob back in, to bring them not back into the promised land. He he does that to a degree, we know later on, but to bring them back to relationship with God so that they are right with him. The second thing you see there in verse six, I love the way he says it. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of of Jacob and to bring the preserved of Israel back in. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What does he mean there when he says that it's too light of a thing 
to bring Jacob back. Jacob is impossibly broken. Israel is impossibly broken. They are utter failures incapable of succeeding. It seems like a big job to bring them back to God, doesn't it? He says, my servant is so mighty. My servant is so infinite in his strength. My servant is so perfect in his holiness. My servant is so complete in his work that he will make quick work of Jacob. It will be nothing for him to bring them back to God. In fact, he is so great that he has not come just to bring Jacob into me. He has come to bring all nations and all peoples before me, that he is so mighty that when he speaks with the word that is like a sword, that it will cause the nations to fall on their knees and to declare him as Lord. And all of them will bring me glory and honor with all of their lives. And what's amazing is by saying that, what he's saying is I'm not just going to let Israel come back in and sit in the corner of my kingdom as though they're reject sons that I'm still angry with. I'm not gonna let those who have failed me come in and they can come and they can sit in the church, but they gotta sit in the back of the church or they can, they can come into the kingdom, but they don't get all the blessings of the kingdom. What he says is I'm gonna bring them back in and I'm going to re-enlist them with the job they originally had. I'm going to so fill them with my glory through my son that all of the nations will recognize in them the light of hope, the life raft of hope that they can come to him and be saved. Do you see the significance of this for you? If there was anybody that had failed so fatally that they were worthless and useless in the kingdom of God. It was Judah and Israel. But because of Christ, because of Jesus, because he has succeeded in every way that we have fallen, because he has represented us before God himself, because he has been afflicted the way we ought to be afflicted, because through him we have been born again. None of us have failed so miserably that we are useless in the hands of God, that he invites us right back into the midst of his church, right back into the midst of his mission and says, you, you who are broken, you who have failed, you who have disappointed, I'm going to place through you a blazing light through you your story to draw people back to the grace of who I am. See, you're not useless. In fact, the very things that you think make you useless are the means that God will use through you to minister and help other people. Many of you have that story, don't you? So you see, for all of us who feel failures, what should we do? We should look to the cross. We should look to the cross you know, the cross says two things at least. We look to the cross and we recognize the costliness of our failures, don't we? And we should face them. We should confront them. We should confess them. We must repent of them. We must turn away from them. We can't turn a blind eye to our failures and act as they are no cost at all. They crucified our Savior. But we see the cost of our failure and at the same time we see our own personal worth that there upon the cross, Jesus paid my price and he paid your price. And that means as much as it cost him, he was willing to pay so that otherwise his life might look totally and utterly worthless. So this morning you may feel like a failure, but my invitation to you is to stop trying to pick up all the sticks out of the woods. My invitation to you is to stop trying to bail the water out of the Titanic. Stop trying to swim across the Atlantic. Maybe you're a stronger swimmer than others, but you're still going to end up tired and dead. 
instead look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to the one who has come after you and hope. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 